Father, as we, your people, gather here, we assemble in your name. Father, we want to be here as people who are thankful. Father, you've been so kind to us. You've been so gracious. You've been so merciful. Father, you gave us your son. Your son came here. Your son left the glory that he shared with you in all eternity past and in time and space for for a few thousand years. And then he came here and he lived the life that we couldn't. Father, he lived here. He lived in here in this world. He lived here amongst all the evil and all the wickedness. And through it all, He loved you. He obeyed you. He glorified you. And He did your will out of love for you. Father, help us to do the same. Father, now I ask for help in feeding the sheep. Father, I know that that we are but dust. From dust we came, to dust we shall return. Our lives are a vapor. But even as we are dust and vapor, You have made us us in Your image and You are restoring the image that that was corrupted when our first father fell. Father, we need help. Father, we know grace is sufficient, so we ask for grace today in Christ's name. Amen. I'll be in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to preach a sermon on a topic that it's been six years since I've preached on it. Brother Jennings preached on it a year and four months ago. I'm going to preach on anger today. Now, I need to issue a disclaimer here. I do not have my sermonic deer rifle out aimed at anyone in particular here this afternoon, okay? <laughs> Honest, I don't. I, it's, it's just time to do this, I think. Um, and I, I guess I will find it quite ironic when I said if I'm going to preach on a sermon on anger, if somebody got angry about that. And if you did, I guess it's time for the sermon, too. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be. I will start at verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's interesting here in this letter so far, Paul, before this, this section I just read, you know how many commands he has issued in the entirety of the letter before this? He's issued one. And it's in chapter 2 where he tells the Ephesians to remember where you were, to remember where you came from, to remember that at one time you were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no hope in the world. But Jesus Christ created one new man out of the two. There's no longer Jew and Gentile in Christ. There's the Christian. There's the child of God. And he wants them to remember that. But that's the only command he gives in this letter before we get to our passage here, starting at verse 17. But again, we know that Paul writes commonly. He establishes doctrine first, and then he gives application. He did it in Romans in the first 11 chapters. He writes doctrine, and then he gives application in chapters 12-16. through 16. He does the same thing here in Ephesians, the first three chapters, then he gets to chapter 4. Now we have application. So doctrine is the basis for what he's saying here. We can't overlook what happened in the first three chapters. When he's talking about the election, the predestination in chapter 1, having been chosen in him, in love. When he gets to chapter 2 and he's talking about the state of the Ephesians, you'll notice he says in verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, these people were Gentiles themselves. But he's talking about a classification here. He doesn't want them to be those people of the beginning of chapter 2 whom he says were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once, in which they once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says you're not like that anymore. Don't walk like the Gentiles do. Verse 17, that's how unsaved Gentiles are walking. Just like unsaved Ephesians were walking prior to their conversion. Prior to God who is rich in mercy reaching down and rescuing them. Saving them by grace through faith. He wants them to live their lives now in light of having been saved by grace, by God intervening and doing something and now walking in the faith which He has given them as a gift. And what does verse 10 in chapter 2 tell us? There's a consequence of having been saved by grace through faith. Because we can't stop at verse 9. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He has prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. Jesus has good works for the Ephesians to walk in, and He has good works for us to walk in. And we're getting into these good works here, into the obedience and the commands He's going to give us in our passage. And, and my, my focus today is going to be on, yes, it's going to be on verse 26. But I want us to think about rightly assessing our anger. Those times when we feel anger coming, 
They'll come. Whether you express them or not is another matter. But situations are going to happen. And anger will, the seed of anger will be there. What are you going to do with it? And how are we looking at our anger? I know, I know we can infallibly always assess everyone else's anger. Wives can always infallibly assess their husband's anger. And husbands can always infallibly assess their wives' anger. Parents can always infallibly assess their children's anger. Children can always infallibly assess their parents' anger. And yes, I'm kidding to some degree. <laughs> but I want us to assess our own. The one assessment that's hard for us to do in our lives is the assessment of ourselves. It's hard for us to, to rightly assess that person we see in the mirror. To rightly assess what they do, how they're living. We're very good at granting grace to that person in the mirror that we won't grant to anybody else. But do we... Is it wrong to grant grace? Not necessarily. But do we wrongly grant grace? Or do we always grant grace and then enable ourselves to do things that we should stop doing? Or do we grant grace to ourselves in order to cover our unbelief? Remember, what's going on here is founded in faith. Faith has to be the fuel for everything here. All of this has to flow out of the faith that God has given us as a gift. So walking through this a little bit, what does he say about the Gentiles? That he doesn't want these Gentile Ephesians to be like anymore. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. See, we're not like that anymore. Something happened when God saved us. Our understanding is no longer darkened. We're not looking through this glass that's, that's this black glass that we can't see anymore. The, the smoke on the glass is gone. It's not darkened anymore. We can look and see life the way it's supposed to be. We can look through that glass and go, wow, that's what it looks like. When your understanding is darkened, you don't look at life rightly. You don't look at everything rightly. You know that that you don't, you, don't, you don't have right wisdom. You don't have right knowledge. You know that, that the Proverbs and the Psalms more than once tell us that, that what's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge? It's not going to college. <laughs> the beginning of wisdom and knowledge is the fear of the Lord. And who has the fear of the Lord? The people who have been redeemed and been given the fear of the Lord as a gift. Jeremiah 32.40 Acknowledging who God is being in awe of God. His works, His wonders, His nature, His character. That's the fear of the Lord. And without that, you don't have any wisdom or knowledge. We do, though, understand by faith. Go back to the message in the first hour. Who are the blessed? Those who do not see and yet believe. There's an old saying that Augustine wrote 1,600 years ago. I believe in order to understand. Everybody wants to figure everything out before they come to Christ. i got to have all the answers. Jesus says, nah, just come. Come by faith without having all the answers and trust Me. So these Ephesians have come because they've been given that faith. And they're no longer living in darkened understanding. Then we get down to verse 22 and verse 24 and verse 31. 
There are the puts here. Put off the old self. Put on the new self. Or put off the old man. Put on the new man. Verse 26, you've already put away falsehood. Verse 31, let bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you. Paul wants us to be active here. These are active imperatives. Something that we're supposed to do. To take action and do. Not just to be passive about it. Not just waiting for, oh God, take my anger away from me. God says, take it off yourself. You're equipped. Put it off. You're not clothed in that which you were clothed anymore before. You are clothed in something new. You're not clothed the way you were when you were the old man. Now you're a new man, male and female. He says, take that which is old off. Put on the new. What is the new? Jesus Christ went to the cross and died not only to satisfy God's anger, He went to the cross in order that you don't have to be unrighteously angry. He has equipped us by His Spirit to obey this. We don't have to respond the way this world does. Look at, you know, look at this world. All this latent anger that's come out in the last 10 to 15 years. Look at how, look at how, look at how social media, there's nothing social about social media anymore. There's nothing civil about civil discourse anymore. Think about all this anger that comes out. Everyone's now got a platform. And anger multiplies out there. And people feed into it. Oh yeah, everyone else is angry. I need to be angry. Well, what are you indignant about? I don't know, but everyone I know is mad. And that's the way it is out there. Everyone's mad. Okay, you, you've got, you know, talk about your subject. Politics. People get, people get all, you know, all this anger about politics. Okay, the Republicans are angry at the Democrats. The Democrats are angry at the Republicans. They've always been angry, but now they're angrier than they've ever been. I know you're going to get angry with me because I'm going to preach a message sometime between now and the election next fall that's going to make everybody mad on politics because I do it every four years and people get mad every four years. But all this anger that's now come out, it's come, okay, look at you know, the gender issues. Oh, you disagree with me. You're engaging in hate speech. Well, it's funny that why aren't they engaging in hate speech? Because they disagree with us. But they respond with anger. Okay, the cancel culture. Think about that. Can, can you disagree with a lot of people out there without them having them remove you from their life anymore? Because they respond immediately with this anger. I can't have you anymore. You don't agree with everything that I believe. Well, that's always been one of the the hallmarks of, I mean, just secular culture here in America is that even though we didn't agree on everything, we could still get along. <laughs> you, you go back to Rodney King in the early 90s in Los Angeles after the riots out there because of what happened to him. He says, why, why can't we all just get along? You know, people can get along if they want to. Christians can get along. Paul says that in Romans 13. But why is everybody so angry? I mean, we have a culture that's so angry. We have a world that's so angry nowadays. But Jesus came, went to that cross, died, purchased you, gave you His Spirit, and His Spirit enables you and equips you to do what He says here, 
about dealing with your anger, and we'll look at some Proverbs in a few minutes here about anger too. But when, when, when He says through His Word here, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. All of it. I know we're going to have to deal with the issue of righteous anger and we'll, we'll deal with that. But I will say this, it's very easy for us to classify our anger as righteous when it isn't. We're very quick to classify our friends or our brothers or our spouse's anger as, <laughs> as unrighteous when it might be. But I, the, the gist of the whole passage here, does Paul want Christians to be angry? I don't think so. He says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Now, is be angry in the ESV a command? Yes. Is it an active command? No. It's a passive. It's not a command in the same sense as put off. It's, 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 it's something, it's in essence something that happens to you. Do people get angry? Yes. I would, I would find it hard, I would be hard pressed to find amongst this room with what, 200 and some adults in it, that we've got 100 people in here who have not had reason to be angry this year. We're almost done with this year. Whether it's as a parent, as a spouse, as an employee, as an attendee of GCC here in San Antonio, okay, has, has the elderly elder said or done something that's gotten you angry? Maybe. <laughs> Has somebody here in this room said something or done something that's gotten you angry this year? We've all, we, we have to deal with the reality of life in this age. And the reality of life in this age is there's anger to be had. And that's why Scripture talks so much about anger. This is not something that is said once and then it's done. Even though if it were only said once and done, if God speaks once, that's sufficient to establish something, isn't it? But when it's repeated and repeated and repeated, I think there's an emphasis here. And we got Paul here talking to these people who were this. They were these Gentiles living in darkened understanding. And now he's got these Gentiles living in the light of having been saved by grace through faith and who now have works prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. So I want us to rightly assess our own anger today. You think about it. We, we sing this song. He is worthy. What's the, what's the first question of that song? Do you feel the world is broken? Yes. Do you think that before Genesis 3, there was anger in the garden? No, there was not anger in the garden before Genesis 3. Is there going to be anger in Isaiah 60 when that comes true? When Revelation 21 comes true? When the new Jerusalem has come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and is dwelling in the full manifest presence of God and of the Lamb. Do you think there's going to be anger there? No, there's not. That's one of the, one of the symptoms of the world being broken, is anger. But, anger amongst Christians is something that can be controlled, isn't it? Isn't the fruit of the Spirit manifest? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and 
self-control. Just because you have reason to get angry, does that mean you must get angry? No, it doesn't. I, I know, ladies, your husband may do the same stupid thing for the 100th time that you've told him to not do. Okay, Don't put the dishes here. Okay, Now, it, it's interesting watching the smiles when I say that. <laughs> okay, you might have forgiven him if he did it 99 times, but the 100th is too much. But in the grand scheme of things, is, is, is where the dishes are put really important? No, it's not. Now, should the husband listen? Yes, he should. Okay. I know that women might think that men listen the first time. Why are you smiling like that? <laughs> but th think about it. In your marriage, in your marriage, how many times have you gotten mad over somebody doing the same thing that you wish they wouldn't do or you've told them that they shouldn't do? Because you're thinking, my, my husband's a Christian. He should do that. Told him a hundred times. Or my wife's a Christian. I've told her a hundred times. Well, yeah, you may have told them a hundred times. But you know what? Where the dishes get put is insignificant. Is it worth causing division? Does anger ever bring unity to anything? No. Anger divides. You think the devil loves it when you're angry like that? You're getting, you're getting wrongly angry at things which are insignificant. Sure, the devil loves that. Because anger always divides. Anger never brings unity. And you, you've, got, you've got your spouse or you've got your friend, okay, you, you, or, or whomever. You know that they should know better. I mean, that's my pet peeve at work, is people who don't listen, adults who don't listen. I've been administering the same software for 16 years. They didn't listen 16 years ago, and they still don't listen today. I mean, this week. They, 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 they send me an email saying, Dr. So-and-so is no longer using this element of the product. We want to remove it from the server. I'm going, oh, Dr. So-and-so is using it. So I run my report, and sure enough, doctor is not only using it, the doctor is using it multiple times a day. I write them back and say, say, yes, the doctor is using this element of the product. Okay, I get an email. Okay, we, we want to get on the server to remove this product because the doctor's not using it. I say, um, I didn't create this project. You guys did. We're using the product. You're not going to get on the server. The next day, the phone rings. They want access to the server to remove the product. Now, it'd be easy for me to get angry. <laughs> I'll tell you some anger stories in a minute. But is it significant? No, it's access to a server. It's people who don't listen. And people in this age aren't going to listen. Do we want people to listen? Yes. But how do we respond when people don't listen? I don't have to respond to that with anger. 
Now, I was this close <laughs> to responding with anger, to be honest, because it's happened so many times over 16 years. The names change, but the result is always the same <laughs> with tech support. But I'm a Christian. Can I use the fact that this is happening for the thousandth time as rationalization for me becoming wrongly angry? I could say I'm justified in my anger. Am I rightly assessing my anger at that point? I'm not. And I say all this because we all have, that's illustrative of, of situations that we all have in our lives. We, we've got these things that happen to us. We didn't ask for them. They become imposed upon us. And then something happens and then we have a decision to make. Are we going to get wrongly angry over something that is insignificant? When we compare the significance of our sin, offense against God. Think about the anger that we've caused Him. And He has real reason to be angry. His Son went to the cross for that. Because it needed to be paid for. Because we needed to be redeemed. Because we needed to be ransomed from the power of sin. And if we don't pay attention and assess our own anger rightly and what makes us angry and how we respond when we, when we don't have to get angry, are we giving opportunity to the devil? Yes. Again, the devil loves when God's people are angry, especially when God's people are angry with God's people. Because we're not going to see anger anywhere within God's people. And let's, let's just leave this room out of it. Out there, in the family of faith, people are angry at one another. Is that going to build unity? Is that going to build the kingdom? How is that a witness to a lost and dying world when Christians are acting the same way as the world that we say we've been called out of? That we say we no longer dwell in? That we say we're citizens of heaven? Well, then why are we acting like citizens of hell? It's a fair question. I mean, my friend up north was fond of saying, now this is about alcohol. He would tell the guys in the prison, because I, if you'd ask the guys in the prison, drugs or alcohol help fuel probably three-quarters of the reasons guys are there. He would say, you know what? Getting drunk never made anyone smarter. He's right. Who gets smarter when they're drunk? Nobody gets smarter when they're drunk. Nobody gets smarter when they're under the influence of whatever substance they're, whether it's alcohol, okay, whether it's you know, choose your drug of choice. You don't get more intelligent when your mind has been altered like that. Anger can affect your mind too. Do you get more intelligent when you're angry? Do you think more clearly when you're angry? I don't think you do. Think about when, when you know that you've been angry and you're in an argument. Think back on those times and try and recall how well and how rational you were thinking in the midst of the rage and the fury. 
you probably were not thinking at your clearest at that point. Because anger doesn't make you think clearer or make you more intelligent or more wise either. So I think there's value in that. Do, do we, how are we going to have better relationships with people if anger hasn't been dealt with? I know one way that we, that we can deal with anger. Paul says here, put it off, put it away. Doesn't anger always, uh, not, not always, doesn't anger sometimes stem from unforgiveness? Somebody's done something to you. Something said some, some, somebody said something to you. Somebody has done whatever, verbally or in action, and you're offended. And you get angry. What are you supposed to do? Is it okay to be angry? Well, again, there are certain situations where righteous anger is appropriate. Yes. But not as many as we would tend to think. I mean, I, I, I want to give you three examples of, of anger. Um, two of them are going to involve forgiveness. But I think that, that this, this goes to the issue of knowing who we are. Maybe you are, by nature, a very calm person. You've never had an issue with anger. Thank God if you are that person. I mean, as a lost guy, I was a hothead. And I still need to know today, at 66 years old, I still have that capacity, even with my new heart. But I think back, I'm 19 years old. 19 years old, so that would have been, what, 1990, I don't know, 1977? Okay. <laughs> okay, and, and, and back when I was 35 pounds lighter, I was a really good athlete. Okay, back when I could run and bend over. I mean, I, I, mean, I, was, I was, you know, you've, those of you that were VBS saw me run in the hurdles, okay, back in the day. That, that as a baseball player, 15 years old, I was the starting pitcher for our team, which finished fourth in the state of Michigan, and I hadn't had my growth spurt yet. And I had an arm. I could hit. Um... Now I'm 19 years old, I've had my growth spurt, I've grown up, and I've got an arm. I mean, I had a cannon. 20 years later, I still remember, I'm playing catch with our, our youngest son. He's 12, 13 years old at that time. And, and he's telling me, you're playing catch not with a softball, but with a hardball, baseball. And he says, he says, you threw it so hard I could hear it coming. And I hadn't thrown in 20 years at that point. So you can imagine what kind of arm I had when I'm 19. So we're playing softball. I'm on this softball team. We'd play competitively in Michigan, go around Michigan on weekends playing in tournaments. Well, in our regular league in Alpena, Michigan, we played on fields which didn't have grass in the infield. They would just scrape all the grass off, make it flat, and they would get, go, to this, go to one of the local plants where they had a quarry, and they would get the stuff called fines. They would ground rock, grind rocks down so they're like this, almost like sand. And that's what they put on top of the infield. Well, it was like concrete. I mean, it was, it was, it was like playing on the worst AstroTurf ever as far as speed goes because the ball didn't slow down when it hit it. Well, I'm playing shortstop, and this guy hits me a two-hopper, a hard one, not a, not a nice, okay, one of these. <laughs> I go down for the second hop, and it comes up and hits me in the mouth. Now, softballs, as you know, are not soft. And our dugouts were not dugouts. They were concrete block shelters. They had ends, 
a roof and a back, but they didn't have a front on them. Well, I'm playing shortstop, and the other team's in the first base dugout over there. And I just got hit in the mouth with this rocket. And some guy on the other team laughs. Remember, I'm a lost 19-year-old hothead with with a cannon. I picked up that softball and threw it as hard as I could at his head. And he got out of the way just in time, and I can still hear 45-plus years later the pop of that ball hitting the concrete next to his head. You know how stupid that was? But that's what rage does. Just that fast, I went from pain to rage. You get it if you've got a temper, if you've got a history of having a temper, if you've, if you've acted out like that. You get what happens when something triggers you. Even as a Christian, something might trigger you. I'll get there in a second. But what do we do when our offense is against a person as a Christian? I'll tell you how a Jew tried to deal with it. We're in the prison, 2000. I run into a guy, run into a guy who's a Jew. He's known for a couple things within the system. He's, I mean, he's already been in the system for over 30 years then. That was 2000, so 23, and he's still there today. You can get how old he is. He was known for a couple things. He's doing life. He was known for the fact that his family died on the way to visit him once. And he was known for this. He said, he told me, and everybody in the system knew it because he'd already been in the system for over 30 years, and I run into him in 2000, and he's in a disciplinary prison 30-some years later. He said, Jeff, it's my goal to make the state of Michigan as miserable as they can as long as I'm here. He's an observant Jew. Okay. <laughs> well, for some reason, he takes to me and he likes me. And we're, we're walking across the yard going to Chow in the afternoon, and there's another line of prisoners going across the yard to their, their housing unit. And he yells to this guy, calls him by his nickname. Hey, so-and-so. And the guy turns around and he waves and he says, Jeff, he said, that's the angriest guy I know. I said, okay, <laughs> all right. Well, I didn't think anything of it. A couple of years go by. My Jewish friend is still in this prison. Who shows up at our evangelistic weekend? This guy who's the angriest guy that he knows. And it's right after our son had died. And I get up there and do a, do a message about forgiveness. And I get done with the message on forgiveness and I'm out in the hallway and I turn around and here's the guy who's the angriest guy my Jewish friend knows. Turns out the angriest guy he knows is also a Jew. He says, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, do we need to go down the end? He's, no, I want to talk to you right here. He says... How did you forgive? And I get, okay, <laughs> you talk about an open door. So I can tell him how I forgave. You, can t- you tell him about the power of Christ and what Christ does for you and how Christ changes you, how Christ forgives us, enabling us to forgive people. I said, you got a problem with forgiveness? He says, yeah. What's your problem? Oh, there's a guy that's done, that did some things to my son. I said, oh. Is he, is he in the system too? Yeah. I said, okay, so this guy's doing time too. Yeah. I said, how are you dealing with it? He says, I'm angry. I said, that's it? You're just angry? And he says, well, no. Nah. 
He says, I have my, I have my Jewish friends send him messages once in a while. Okay? And, and these messages are not little sticky notes if you get my drift in the prison setting. But he said, he, again, he says, how did you forgive? I said, and I tell him again. And, and we have multiple discussions through the course of the weekend. And he's still not on the uptake because he's hanging on to his hatred. And I say, what does your rabbi tell you? He says, well, I got two rabbis. I said, okay, what do your two rabbis tell you? He said, well, one tells me I need to forgive and the other one says I don't need to forgive. I said, which one's right? He says, I don't know. Get to the end of the weekend. Have another chance to see him before I'm probably never going to see the guy again. Go through this again. He's not on the update. Far as I know to this day, he hasn't forgiven. You know what it's like being that miserable? If you're angry at somebody and you haven't forgiven, how miserable are you? How is that helping you in your fellowship? How long have you been holding on to something that you should have let go a long time ago? You can say, and I get it at one level, well, they haven't asked for forgiveness and they haven't repented. And I say, fine, but does God want you to be miserable in the meantime? I don't think so. So what are you doing with your anger towards another person? Okay, last illustration. Um, I apologize in advance. This is a little graphic. Our Bible is graphic and so is life. Our son dies. Year plus later, after all the legal wranglings that you watch the system go through, um, you ask, you've been asking the, the prosecutor all along some hard questions. Okay. When he, when he got run over by the truck, okay, did he die right away or did he live a while? Oh, he died instantly. Okay. Okay. Um, we get to the hearing where where the man is going to be either bound over for trial or not bound over for trial. The forensic pathologist who's done the autopsy on our son's on the stand. And the, the prosecutor's asking questions. And he's talking about what he saw when he did the autopsy on our son. And one of the things he saw was, now we had asked him, do you have any signs that, he, that John knew that this was coming, that he's going to get run over? No. And he's describing the condition of, of our son. He said, oh, there was a tire track on the underside of his right arm. John's right-handed. And I'm sitting there next to my wife thinking, did John know that he was going to die? And he put his right arm up. And the lawyers lied to me about it because they didn't want to hurt me. Did they think we wouldn't find out? He died with a tire track right here. Then, they're talking about the fact that, oh, well, they're asking more questions, and they say, and, and there was blood in his lungs, and, and the, they ask a question. Yeah, that means he aspirated blood. You can only breathe in blood if you're alive. And I sat straight up in that courtroom because they had lied to us. They had said he died instantly. And I was angry. Because that was our son on the side of the road. How long did he lay there in the grass? 
This happened around 3 o'clock in the morning. They found him at 7 o'clock in the morning. How long did he lay there dying? I was so angry. There was a break after that. Cheryl and I went into a little room down the hallway. I've never been this mad before, and I never want to get this mad again. I was so angry, I wept. I've never wept tears of anger before, and I don't ever want to be that angry again. But they had lied to us. They lied to us about how our son died. And I was so furious at them. But I'm a Christian. What do I do? I've got to let it go. And by grace, I did. I don't want to get to that point again. I didn't ask for that. That was imposed upon me that day. But it happened like that. And things are going to happen in your life that are going to be imposed upon you. And they're going to make you respond in a certain way. And what do you do with your response? My anger, as much as it was over the death of my son, it was sinful anger. It was not righteous anger. I cannot assess my anger in that case as being righteous anger. I have to get rid of my anger in that case. I can't hold it against that lawyer. God will deal with the lawyer. I don't want God to deal with me in judgment. I don't want to prove I'm not saved by the way that I live. I want to prove that I am saved by the way that I do live, even when it's hard. That's why I could say to that Jewish guy, I forgave by grace so I can bear witness to the power of God in the life of a formerly 19-year-old hothead softball player. How many of you are formerly 19-year-old hothead softball players just with another name? What are you doing when anger hits, when anger comes upon you, when anger, situations of anger are imposed upon you? Praise God that He gave me grace to respond well. Now count it all joy when the trials come. I didn't ask for that trial. I didn't ask for the, the trial in the first place, but then this one trial that day. I mean, Cheryl could tell you how angry I was. And it was unrighteous anger. You can't assess it any other way. So what if the lawyer lied? So what if they didn't tell us the truth? That doesn't justify sinful anger. Even as much as it hurts. Even as much as it still makes me cry over 20 years later. And I have to make sure I don't go back and now start getting angry at them again. Because it can be very easy to say, oh, well, I give it to God. And then you know what? You know what people like to do? They like to yank it back out of God's hand and put it back in their pocket. Because in some way, sometimes, some people think that somehow they're letting people down by turning it over to God. By not being angry. Well, no. Turning it over to God is the right thing to do. Whatever it is. By turning it over to God. Because do I have to 
Let's, let's face it, at the end of the day, if I wouldn't have done that, that would have been an act of unbelief. That would not have been acting in faith. I've got Scripture telling me what to do. I've got Scripture telling me to be a person of faith. You have the same Scripture. There may be some time in your life when it becomes abundantly hard to get rid of the anger because the offense is so great. Whether it's something happens in a marriage, something happens at work, something happens in relationships, yes, somebody in this room beside me is going to have a hard challenge with that. I don't know who. But how are you going to respond when it happens? When out of the blue, the situation happens? Scripture wants us to respond right away, rightly. Scripture doesn't want us to think about it for six months before we respond rightly. The biblical commands for us to do this, that, or the other thing, are those are, those are commands that we are to obey now. Fueled by faith, again. Because it has to be fueled by faith. Faith has to be the genesis of all of this. Faith has to be the root of how this dealing with their anger, putting away bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor and slander, along with all malice, being kind to one another. It's interesting. There's the contrast there in, in verse 31. Those negative things, and then right away he says, instead of that, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So when anger comes, how do we look in that mirror and assess it rightly? How do we look at it and go, well, this is righteous anger? Again, it's probably not, if you really look at it well, it's not as righteous as you think it is. Now, are there some things that are, that are worth getting? Get, yeah, you know, is, is, the, is the genocide of unborn children in this country something worth being angry about? Yeah. To a point. Don't take your anger across the line. Because what we try to do is we, try, we, we like to get our, our anger that's righteous and push it to the very precipice of unrighteousness. Well, you know what? You walk to precipices long enough, you're going to slip over the edge. How, how many news stories are you seeing about people wanting these, these dramatic pictures at the Grand Canyon because they want to dangle over the edge? And the last picture is of them falling over the edge and dying. You don't want to go to the very precipice of righteous anger here and then you fall off into unrighteous anger because the problem is you're not going to know when you fall. You're just going to gently cross that line and then you're going to wake up and go, whoa, wait, I'm not doing this righteously anymore. <laughs> My anger is no longer righteous. So I would say be very, very careful. Even those things which do make us angry, which do give us basis for anger. Injustice. God was not pleased with injustice. How many times did the prophets speak about injustice? Injustice is, is yes, is there a righteous anger? that? Yeah. But must you get angry? 
Can you respond to injustice without getting angry? I think you can. Can you respond to that which is really wrong without getting angry? Can you as a parent respond to your kid doing the same thing that you've told them not to do a hundred times without lashing out at your child? Can you discipline your children? Can you run a tight ship at home without having all this anger expressed? You can. You don't need to be a parent like 90% of the football coaches are in this country who are screaming maniacs because that's how they think they have to act in order to assert authority. You don't have to be a screaming maniac to assert authority. You don't have to when your child disobeys. You don't have to discipline them in visible wrath, fury, anger, where you end up having to apologize for being angry afterward. You can, by the power of the Spirit, remain calm while you're disciplining your child, while you are running a tight ship, while you are letting them know that, that immediate obedience is expected when commands are given. Isn't God kind with us? <laughs> Hasn't He been kind with us? Has He dealt with us according to our sin? No, He hasn't. So, you know, in assessing our anger, looking at it the right way, it, it is, is sometimes our anger a lack of faith? Yes. Sometimes do we overreact? Sure we do. Let's be honest. You overreact and I can overreact to, to situations. Again, is that which is causing your anger worth or worthy of the anger? Many times it's not. It just isn't. It's insignificant. That, that, that overreacting is not going to help anything at the end of the day. No, and, and sometimes, let, let's, let's look at another thing that we have to look at. Was there really sin involved? Was that thing that really offended you sinful? Or was somebody just doing something that was a mistake? Or somebody doesn't know any better? that I know people are going to leave here in a little while whenever they leave, whether it's when I say amen or after the meal or whenever, and, and most of you are going to get in a vehicle and drive. Those of you who are going to get in a vehicle and drive know very well that out of all cities, San Antonio has the best drivers in the Western Hemisphere. Somebody out there is going to do something foolish by your perception while you're driving. And is your immediate response to try and push your horn through the dashboard. Okay. Is your immediate response to, to want to wave at him with less than a full hand of fingers? But you know what? Even if you don't, if the thought is there, it's as if you did it. So Jesus says, the desire to do it is as if you've done it. The roads of San Antonio are a wonderful place to test your sanctification. I, I, I had never seen before, even driving in Detroit, Chicago, 
Okay, this thing where you are in the second lane from right, you're on five lanes there on I-10 over there, and some guy is over here in the fourth lane, and he finds it necessary to pass and go into the fifth lane, and then he wants to get off at Vance Jackson here, and he swoops in front of all five lanes of traffic, and he barely misses the barrier. You see that all the time, don't you? Never saw that anywhere else. Now, is that unwise? You bet. Is it dangerous? Yeah, it's dangerous. But getting angry at that guy, I know a woman would never drive like that. <laughs> getting angry at that guy, how is it going to change the driver of that vehicle? They're not going to change at all. <laughs> Are they? You're never going to see him again. What, is, what productive is going to come out of your anger? You may be in the, in the car with your spouse. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to let your spouse have it because of what that guy did. Well, she's just sitting there. She didn't do anything. Or, or you know, the kid does something in the back, and now all of a sudden you got a short fuse, and you turn around and you yell at the kid in the back seat and the car seat, and the, and the kid's being a kid. You were fine five minutes before. Self-control. Do you have to get angry at that foolish driver? Do you have to then have that anger play out in how you deal with the other people whom you're around at that time, whom you love? Are you going to let... Now, by the time you get home, everyone's on edge. People are just getting out of the car, not daring saying anything because dad's, dad's hot. What, what an anger... What did anger produce there? It didn't produce anything. Brethren, we're equipped to not do that. We don't have to react like that. Like I said, the Proverbs, the Proverbs give us some wise sayings on anger. Proverbs 14.29. This is a good one for drivers. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Proverbs 15.1, a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.18, he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger. Proverbs 22.24, make no friendship with a man given to anger. Proverbs 27.4, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming. And Proverbs 29.22, one given to anger causes much transgression. Are we not different from the world? Yes. We don't have to look just like them in how we respond. Is it going to be challenging sometimes? You bet it's going to be challenging. But we are equipped. That's why in assessing our anger and looking at it, not trying to find a way to make our anger righteous, what's the better thing to do? It's not to get angry in the first place. Has, is not our Savior abundantly patient with us as His redeemed people? We are not yet perfect. We still sin. Now, He doesn't look at our sin as a judge anymore. He's looking at our sin as our Father. 
but we still have this responsibility to confess our sins because he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, right? But why do we want to test the Lord? Why do we want to test our justification? Well, all my sins, past, present, and future are forgiven, so it's okay if I get angry at this. Well, no, that's testing the Lord. You don't want to test the Lord that way. He's given you self-control by His Spirit. You don't have to get angry at those things. You don't have to get angry at your brother, your sister. I mean, people, people come and say, well, I, I've got this issue with so-and-so. What do I do? Well, I've got two scenarios for you. Go to them and address it. And if you're not willing to do that, let love cover a multitude of sins. Think about how your relationships with people would be different if you either addressed that person with whom you're angry or let love cover it and move on. I'm telling you, I'm old. You want a simple life, all you young people, even you old people. Anger gets in the way. Anger complicates things. Anger never simplifies anything. Anger complicates things. And again, the devil who, who wants this opportunity loves it when we are angry. That when we're not doing what Paul has said here in this passage. When we're holding on, when our anger is like this. Well, you don't know why I'm, you don't know what so and so did to me. You're right, I don't. But I know what they did to Jesus. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who are we to say that was wrong? Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ, Paul says. Be imitators of Christ. Let's pray. Father, Father, I know in all these things that have been said here, they're just mere words that go in one ear and out the other if we don't follow them. Father, I need help in following what I've just said. Father, my brothers and my sisters need help too. Father, You have not left us without help or without hope. You have given us Your Spirit. You have given us Your Word. You have given us each other to help us in the battle of this life as we war against the devil. Father, help us. Help us to remember to have the armor of God upon us. Father, let us not enter the battle without those tools of war which You've given us. Father, help us in Christ's name. Amen.